Hello and welcome to our third uh, webinar in this uh, 2017 series. I would very much like to welcome uh, Nick Hunt. Nick, how are you doing? I'm fine. Good afternoon. Great. Good to hear from you. So um, just want to uh, go through some things first. Um, what we're talking about today with Nick is uh, the Internet of Voice, and I've titled this um, Forget the IoT, Let's Consider the Internet of Voice. And um, I'll let Nick introduce himself in a minute. Just a few things to say. Um, first of all, uh, I just want to say thank you to our sponsor, Project Haystack. This is an open source project um, looking at simplifying data of, for the Internet of Things. And I think um, it'd be great uh, if you guys go and take a look at their website, project-haystack.org, uh, and check out what they're doing because it's a very, very interesting uh, open source project. Uh, we want to make this interactive as well. So um, if you do have any questions for myself or Nick, uh, very happy to take them. Uh, best thing to do is to type them in. And uh, I will see them and I'll be able to put them uh, to Nick as we go along. Uh, also, uh, we are now a podcast. So you can uh, subscribe to our uh, monthly webinar stroke podcast it's called the smart building series as i said before and you can find us on soundcloud or also um, on the itunes store uh, in the podcast section so just do a search for smart buildings and you'll find us there um, yeah and then obviously that uh, works with uh, the apple software on your phone or wherever so you can listen to us um, whenever you want so really, just remains for me to say uh, hi, Nick, again, and uh, be great if you could just give us some um, little intro about your experience and where you come from, and and then we can start talking about uh, the subject for today. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I'm Nick Hun. I've been involved in comms technology uh, for getting on for thirty years now. Um, I've got a fairly diverse background um, across different areas, and everything from high voltage robot vision, semiconductor manufacturing, um, medical devices, but a lot of time I've spent over the last 30 odd years um, very much with comms, wireless comms, and what's now known as the Internet of Things. So I think I started off in 1992 with my first connected application, as they were then called, which was running over analog cellular systems. Um, since then, I've started up a couple of companies involved in this. Um, those have shipped literally millions of wireless modules. I like to think I've helped people add wireless connectivity to everything from snowplows to sex toys. Um, and also more recently been involved with smart energy um, companies where not only were we putting out end-to-end -end systems, but also pulling back trillions of data points and starting to address all of the issues that come when you have very, very large amounts of time series data that you're trying to convert into something that's a compelling value for somebody. So I'm currently doing quite a lot of work on voice and audio. Um, that's based around some of the next generation of um, Bluetooth standards. But I've been intrigued looking at the convergence of different technologies and trying to understand where the Internet of Things is going. Um, I think the Internet of Things means many different things to many people. Um, in a lot of the time, it's really no different from what we used to call machine to machine. 
I think it's largely just seen as new branding for something that never quite achieved its potential. And one of the areas it's changed is we're seeing costs coming down, we're seeing different communication technologies which are changing the dynamics of the marketplace. We're seeing the beginning of a growth of Internet of Things for consumer products. I think we're really at the very, very early stage of that. Um, that is vastly overhyped at the moment. But there are some real applications starting to come out in commercial areas where people are using um, connected data and realizing that the big difference between machine to machine and Internet of Things is the quantity of data and what you do with the data. Um, you're no longer just reporting, you're actually trying to develop insight and then generate value from the data. So that's sort of the background of where I am. And what I've termed the Internet of Voice, I find particularly intriguing as it was a technology that really came in out of the blue as far as most of the industry is concerned. Um, it wasn't from a company that many saw as a key technology player in consumer hardware. But when we look at what Amazon's done with Alexa, and that certainly to me is the main driving force on this, I think that really has some serious implications in how it can change the way that consumers interact with the Internet of Things. And also I think it raises a couple of questions about how long people will continue to stay in love with their smartphones because once you start to talk to something rather than touching it, which is what we do, or pressing a key, um, you start to change a lot of the interaction paradigms. So that's sort of the background where I am and why I'm fascinated by what's happening with voice at the moment. Yeah, great. <clears throat> and that was a brilliant overview. Thank you. So I thought maybe we could, um, and you, obviously you touched on it there, um, about your kind of little overview of the, uh, where the IoT is at the moment. Um, and that's where I thought we could start and then we can, we can move on into the uh, IOV, Internet of Voice, uh, a little bit later. Um, you mentioned you know, r roughly where you think we are with, um, with the IoT at the moment. And, and in your really good blog post, um, which you published last month, you described the Internet of Things as a bit of a bubble at the moment, right? That the majority of products are sort of claiming that they are um, what you know something that they're perhaps not, and it's a rebranding effort. What, why hasn't, for example, the IoT in smart home not taken off as we probably thought it might? I mean, smart home's interesting. I came across an article in a practical wireless magazine in 1951 which was talking about a little estate of houses that Motorola had built down in Arizona and they were all automated houses um, they presumably had timers that turned on the lights and drew the curtains and everything else and it was predicted that every house in America would be built like that within five years time um, I don't think any of them were, but companies like this concept of trying to place automation in a house. We've had automated homes, we've had connected homes, we've had robotic homes, we've had internet homes, we've had broadband homes, uh, we now have smart homes. Every 10 years when the industry finds it doesn't work, they change the name. 
Um, and so far, that hasn't had much of an effect um, in doing anything other than acting as a rebrand and keeping marketeers and um, conference companies in business. And me. I think there's a really <laughs> big issue with homes, which is what we as the people that live in them expect of them. Um, and one of the things that smart home sort of does is imply that your home needs an operating manual. And I think that goes against the feeling of what most people expect when they come home. Um, we put technology in our home, but we generally use it as standalone pieces of technology because we don't generally expect something to happen when you operate a different piece of machinery. We don't expect even the most basics that when you put the television on, you don't expect the lights to dim. And you certainly don't expect the coffee maker to do something and the washing machine to do something. The problem here is that you do have some companies and some people that really like this concept of automation and think that it somehow improves your quality of life. And I think that's the real issue that most people have had, that most cases I know where somebody has put smart home equipment in, it's the husband that's put it in, and it's probably leading to more divorces than the sort of thing, Ashley Madison leaks. Um, it's a thing you hate. You, you go away on a business trip and you just know you'll get off the plane and there's a text on the, your phone from your wife saying that the house has stopped working. And that may sound trivial, but it's actually quite a big challenge to make it all work and all work seamlessly. Um, it's interesting that if you look at products in the home for home automation, even just something simply simple like your heating and or HVAC system. There aren't many products out there today that I would say work particularly well, even for an unconnected product. Um, and we need to start off by designing smart home products that work well autonomously because you can't rely on having connectivity. If we can't do that bit, adding in the complexity of connectivity probably isn't going to make them easier. And here you start to see an interesting conflict of the traditional suppliers of all of your smart home equipment, sorry, all home equipment, sort of whether that's HVAC, whether that's lighting, um, the people who install it, who have been installing the same thing for years and will keep on installing the same thing, the companies that supply them are very different from the high-tech companies that are the IoT end. And I think there's a real mismatch in both the way products are designed the distribution channels that actually sell them and get them into the hands of your local electrician and plumber, and then the expectations of the customer. Um, and we're largely having high-tech products that are being driven by a maker community that somehow believes they can scale from making individual bits for their own enjoyment into shipping hundreds of millions of products that everybody's going to want. And that's the same mismatch that I think goes right back to those first five Motorola automated homes of not really involving home users in a lot of this rather than believing you can impose technology on home users and that the house is the point where most people want to get away from it they just want it to work um, 
My light switches have all worked first time every time for the last 30 years. Um, I don't ever expect to see a wireless or IoT technology which is that efficient. Yeah, right. Uh, you um, your post. This is something I picked out, which I thought was was quite profound. I'd like you to um, uh, hear you, your thoughts on it. That the IoT paradigm has it that it's mostly about collecting data and then applying algorithms to extract value from that data. Hmm. So that kind of speaks to what you were saying about the complexity of this. Um, so do you do you think, as you as you said before, that you know, okay, it's, we've got to get the product right first, and then and then we can think about adding the complexity. Um, you know, I mean, to, to me, there is a distinct difference between machine to machine, um, which is what a lot of connected stuff is, and it's mostly commercial, and Internet of Things. Um, I don't think Internet of Things is just a rebranding. Machine to machine is typically about collecting data in order to monitor something. And if you look at what happens to the data, it's not mixed with any other data streams. You are basically looking at that data to look to see if there's a fault or something has gone wrong or where something is. So with telematics it's about where are you, with factory automation it's checking vibration to say are these bearings about to fail. Um, they're all quite straightforward sort of if this then that um, on a straightforward data stream. Internet of Things is where you start to accumulate a lot of data from different sensors, so I mean, if you were to look at an HVAC system, you'd be pulling in temperature data, wind data, um, sort of historic data, knowledge about your travel, when you're in and when you're out, sharing that amongst large communities so you have enough data to be able to start to analyze it and generate insight that you wouldn't do off a single stream where you were just saying, turn it on, turn it off, does it work, doesn't it work? Um, so it's a different paradigm that now what's really of interest is getting as much data as cheaply as possible and extracting data from that and that's where the value of your offering is. So your value moves up into the cloud. Um, and that's the piece where people struggle. Is there's a bit of a catch-22 that you need to make it cheap enough to get the data which means low-cost sensors, they're easy to deploy, um, but you need a lot of them before you have enough data to actually get the data value out of it. And I think that's where a lot of home automation struggles, that it's a very fragmented market. There's a lot of different suppliers, generally shipping low-volume, sort of quite high-cost products. There's very little aggregation of data amongst them. So you're still really playing with just high-end techie products where somebody can put a dashboard in the cloud and say, it's got a dashboard, it must be IoT. Um, you really want stuff to disappear and conclusions to come out and things to work better as a result of that insight and conclusions. Um, but that needs scale and I think we'll get to that scale in the commercial arena first. Right. And until we do that, we won't see it come back into consumer. Because that was going to be my next question, really. Was so are you there? You're more excited about the IoT opportunity in commercial buildings and 
uh, in industry? I I think it's where it's going to happen. Um, I mean, not least because consumers like differentiation. They like to all have something different. Um, and we've largely got a, a sort of marketing system that tries to persuade people about that. Go with your favorite brand. Um, commercial is a lot easier. You have a facilities manager that says, we have this building, and effectively everything comes from one supplier. Um, it's nice if it interoperates with stuff from another supplier, but it doesn't actually matter because it's all going to interoperate. All the data is going to go to the same cloud. It should be easier to pull other data in. Um, hopefully there are people up there doing cloud analytics that are pulling stuff in from lots of different buildings. And the more... going back to each to make them more efficient. Whether that's saying this is how your building should work, sort of this is how you heat it up, cool it down, or we look at the sort of aggregate of buildings across a city, if we could all band together because we know what we could use, we might be able to negotiate better energy pricing. Um, IoT plays to that sort of scale. Um, it doesn't play to a lot of individual different setups. Um, it will do if you get enough of it because you can then take those insights and spread them back out. But initially you need to get scale of lots of things doing something similar and that's easier in commercial. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very interesting. So just to move it on a little bit and start talking about the IOV, why, why are you so interested or um, so taken by voice recognition? What do you think it has? Uh, the, the thing that I like about it is it's easy, um, or at least as a consumer experience, it's easy. Um, the ability to just ask something to do something rather than to get out a phone, open an app, type something in on an interface that was never designed for typing. Just being able to ask the question is such a more sensible interface for a consumer environment. Um, and that's what I like about it. Um, I think there's a very intriguing consequence of it that if we can get it to work well, and I mean, you have to underline that it's incredibly difficult to make Internet of Voice work. Amazon did it with Alexa. Um, they have a lot of data analytics behind them. They still only have it working in two languages, and they're still ahead of the bunch. As at one level, you've got sort of speech to text um, recognition, which is a little bit easier. Um, Google probably do that slightly better, with particularly with the new DeepMind algorithms they have. But then taking that and trying to make sense of what's the question being asked and how should I reply to it is the really, really difficult bit. That's where you need some really hardcore data analytics um, sitting behind it. Right, because we're talking about but two separate things, aren't we? It, voice to text is literally, you, you don't really need to understand semantically. Exactly. Yeah. No. No. Um, I mean, you, semantics gives you a better result um, because you can 
start to think whether or not that the sentence you've just translated makes sense. But converting that into an understanding that produces an action is a totally different uh, game again. And I find it fascinating how well Amazon has done with that. It's an interesting one because it's something that plays to the winning company. That the way you get better at it is having more data. So that means more people asking you more questions. Um, and it's one of those ones which benefits the winner. Whoever does it well and attracts more customers naturally gets more data. So as long as they don't fall over, have the chance of staying further ahead in that game. Um, I don't think we'll see a lot of players in that particular game for that very reason. Um, but it's the ability to just be able to talk to things and get them to work, which I think is probably the key to making smart home operate. Um, I think smart home based around a phone-based app is a pretty dismal user experience. Um, in contrast, talking to your home is really quite neat. Yeah, absolutely. And and I and again, I picked this out from from what you'd written that voice recognition in the cloud, along with the AI to interpret and respond intelligently, is highly disruptive. And, and as you said, I think in smart home, we can uh, you can see that it could be you know, very interesting in, in terms of how it might disrupt or, or change the user experience. Yeah. As, I mean, it's been interesting over the last five years or so as smart home and IoT has been coming about, everybody's been saying it's going to be all about who wins the common standards battle. Is it going to be Bluetooth? Is it Wi-Fi? Is it Zigbee? Is it Thread? And I think th the arrival of voice has really pointed out how that was largely nonsense. It's not that difficult to actually make a radio technology that will support all of those different protocols. Um, that's already beginning to happen, it'll get cheaper or you can make bridges or hubs. It's, it's the user interface and the control that's the most difficult part of all of this. Because if you want devices to work out of the box, it should be easy to just set them up and make it happen. And the more you can move that up into the cloud, and that may initially make devices down at the household level slightly more complex and expensive to cope with a number of different standards, but move that all up to the cloud, make that device management and infrastructure management happen in the cloud along with provisioning. Um, if you can do all of that by talking to stuff, um, all of a sudden, you can get to the point where you really can think, yeah, I can probably get this stuff out of a box and it will work. Um, now, that's still a lot more difficult than having stuff which will work together. And again, that plays to the commercial environment where even when you have standards, most facilities managers will buy everything off one supplier. Um, and that's where, again, you get to start to prove out your algorithms, your deployment, your provisioning. All of the things, the practical things, which make this and the whole of IoT still quite a difficult thing to do. I mean, 
keep on telling people the IoT is really hard. There are so many different levels, so many different technologies, so many levels of expertise just working up the value chain. And the people that work in each one of those areas talk totally different languages to the people next to them. Um, so, yeah, I think the IoT is it's a great thing to do, but um, it's not easy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely agree. Why sense? I mean, I'll sort of play devil's advocate here a little bit. I mean, my I haven't really used um, many of these voice assistants, but, you know, obviously I've used Siri on my phone. I'm yet to be, um, I'm, well, let's say I'm, I'm underwhelmed at the moment. Um, not that it, I don't think it's a good user experience. I definitely do. But just in the terms of the capabilities that it offer and the understanding, um, and I was intrigued by um, a quote I saw that you had that the um, Google CEO said that 20% of queries on their mobile app were now given over voice. So we do, it definitely seems to be moving in that direction. But I mean, how, I, I, I guess what I want to ask is like, how far away are we from this? Because I don't feel at the moment, me personally, that we're anywhere near at a point where I would start using voice predominantly. It's moving by leaps and bounds. Um, a year ago, I would probably have agreed with you. Okay. Um, I then became aware sometime in the middle of last year that for writing text messages, I started using Katana. And if anything was much more than a sentence long, I'd use it. And I was surprised that it got it right most of the time. Certainly enough of the time to make it very worthwhile to use it rather than trying to type something out on the phone. Alexa I find quite good. I don't use it a lot. Um, and I have to say I probably have it as something to play with. But the bulk of the time when I use it and when my wife uses it, and that's an equally impressive one that it's, it's picking up two totally different voices, it works. Um, so I do think we've gone beyond the novelty position. Mm -hmm. um, that these are now certainly usable in an environment where you'd be happy to have another go at them um, on those occasions where they don't work. Yeah. Um, and it, it's that point of where do you hit the friction that it fails so often you give up as opposed to where do you get to the point where it's annoying or potentially sometimes amusing on the occasions it doesn't work. And I certainly think those are there. I mean, going back, I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned Siri. I think Apple potentially is at a disadvantage here because it's not an analytics company. And it is having that ability to do the background really hard stuff. It's the rooms full of PhDs yeah. and then it's the issue of actually managing rooms full of PhDs um, that really gives you the edge on this and that does play to the companies that have those. Um, I think that is a challenge that Apple has if it compares itself and with Google. I mean Amazon is fascinating because they're not coming into this from a mobile viewpoint. Um, they're coming in at this with a service and 
in the same way that I mean Amazon is probably best described as a distribution company these days. Right, and they have a tremendous um, um, amount of expertise in uh, virtual and you have cloud uh, cloud services. Absolutely, um, and it's the virtuous circle that the more they do, the more people they get using it. Um, the more data they have feeding in to help them improve it. Um, Google has that as well. I think Google did a brilliant acquisition with DeepMind. I mean, not least because DeepMind are absolutely incredible. But can you talk people about that? Because I don't think um, many people listening would know would know about that. What, what was no? That? I mean, DeepMind. It's a London-based data analytics company. Um, very much into, I think, advanced machine learning is probably the best way you describe them. Um, they were acquired by Google, and they've already come out with some fascinating um, analytics, which they're doing with um, Google Data. They've effectively rewritten Google's um, language analysis one um, for their translation. Um, that's made it significantly more efficient. Uh, they're doing quite a lot of work in the UK with the National Health Service. Um, we have the largest amount of patient anonymized patient data of anywhere in the world, um, spanning about 50 years, and they have a number of contracts to start mining that um, alongside medical research projects to try and see if they can dig out more information um, about how various symptoms both develop and how they respond to different types of treatment. Mm. Um, I mean, you hear a lot about IBM Watson. I mean, Watson is all about very big supercomputer based right. with very clever algorithms on. DeepMind, I think, is taking far more the approach of, well, it doesn't actually matter what the underlying hardware is. It's how clever you can be with your algorithm development. Mm, it's interesting you mentioned Watson because they they now have uh, an offering for smart build for commercial buildings. Yes. Yeah. Um, Watson, I, I think, is a little bit underrated. I mean, they are doing a lot of analytics, um, a lot of machine analytics um, that's looking towards the IoT and in particular the industrial IoT, uh, what is now generally sort of dubbed Industry 4.0. Um, but it's the companies with that analytics six. Fascinating position because they have so much ownership of the consumer. IBM and Watson have an equal ownership of corporates, um, at particularly corporates through sort of the consultancy and the factory automation. Google has certainly got the amount of data coming in, but it's interesting if you then look at what their approach is to go back to the customer base, that voice doesn't necessarily work very well for an advertising-driven model. Because the last thing I want to do is say, Google, serve me another advert. <laughs> right. Um, we'll have to listen whereas, when you yes yeah whereas Amazon has that touch point that if you're using echo you're probably a, a prime member anyway so you're paying them an annual subscription and some of the time you will end up ordering something which again is another cut whether it's 
from them or whether they're just the distribution service that delivers it. So it's got the hooks to keep the customers coming back in a way that voice doesn't for Google. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's really interesting. Um, you also mentioned Google's uh, neural machine translation in your article. Uh, that's, yes, I mean, that's the, 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 the new algorithms that have come out of DeepMind right. okay. um, that are effectively replacing Google's previous translate. Um, there's a very good article, I think it's up on the um, Google blog on that. I think I'd better put a link into the one if people want to dig into it. Um, I mean, they are reckoning that it's sort of 30 to 60% more efficient than the previous machine translation and should be quicker and better at learning additional languages. Yeah, yeah I'll probably... Um, but that's very much sort of the fascinating approach that you have when you're working with some of the sort of the top data analysts that whereas most machine translation initially was sort of driven from the linguistic side, you're now having people just saying, no, it's just sort of look at it from the machine learning. This is just about structures, understand structures and go from that point. Right. Yeah, I will, I will definitely put a link not uh, to that and also your article um, on our website. Um, uh, so people can can reference that, and also quickly, um, just to say to everyone listening, uh, please uh, feel free to put some questions to Nick or myself. Uh, Nick, my my second sort of um, issue, I guess, is with this is um, data privacy. So, as far as I understand, you know, you buy Alexa, let's say you buy a smart home assistant, you put it in the corner of your room. Um, but it's constantly on, right? It's constantly listening for, for commands. It's constantly listening for a keyword or a key phrase. Now, given what we know now over the last sort of year and a half about, for example, the, what the NSA were doing, collecting data on everybody or, um, you know, what hackers have been doing in terms of stealing data, um, is it wise really to have you know, a microphone constantly on, uh, listening, and that data then being the, stored somewhere else. The, the devices I've seen, um, you have a microphone that's constantly listening. Um, that is constantly listening for a key phrase, and that's doing that locally. So there's a, a small low-power DSP um, that sits behind the microphone, constantly listening and just listening for you to say hello Alexa or hello Google or whatever your keyword happens to be. Until it hears that it doesn't send anything up to the cloud um, and it's only at that point that it will open the cloud link and start to stream the voice data and ask for recognition at the other end. I don't think it makes any sense for a product to constantly stream. Um, the amount of traffic you would have to stream um, is high. The amount of processing you'd need to do in the cloud is incredibly high for no real benefit. Now, could NSA or somebody hack or do they have a backdoor in these so that they can turn these on for people that they want to listen? Well, yeah, that can happen. Um, I don't think it's 
in the interests of any of the companies selling this to make it happen. But the interesting one is if you look at technology, there's a number of microphone companies out there in the world who are already making voice recognition microphone arrays that look for keywords. And those are designed to be extremely low power so that you can put them in earbuds, hearing aids, just stuff that runs off batteries for weeks. Um, and they will just sit in the background listening for that keyword and then at that point they wake up, transmit something, go back to sleep again. So from a hardware point of view, from a cloud data point of view, you don't want to be always listening. Are you worried that somebody may bug it and listen in? Um, yes, they could. There are plenty of apps that people download to their phones today that can constantly listen. Um, if you sign up for some of the programs for things like research into what TV programs people listen to, those have microphones that are on for most of the time. Um, quite a lot of sort of healthcare and fitness ones that look for um, sleep apnea, other things, have microphones that listen all the time and broadcast back. Um, so yes, there is a risk. Um, you can push stuff up all the time. I don't think the industry is particularly interested in doing it. Um, whether either governments or hackers, and it's up to you to decide which is which, would decide to do that, well, yes, they could, and yes, they're probably already doing it. Um, or certainly, they're already doing it with smartphone apps. Right, yeah, because I'm being shown or that you can use a, a phone as a listening device anyway, right? Yes. So I guess it's not really any different to that. In fact, it's probably worse because phones are with us all the time. There was um, just a question here, Nick. Um, uh, someone wanted to know, uh, uh, or just to clarify, or, or you to extend your point about commercial data analytics. Do you, uh, and you mentioned Google, Amazon, IBM, do you think in terms of the commercial data analytics, IBM has an advantage there? I think they have an advantage because they effectively have the supply route down to the customers. Um, if you look at the way the large companies work, I mean, IBM do a vast amount of factory and office automation work um, either directly or through consultancies that they work with. So they're already in that space. Um, they already understand the way those contracts work. And that's a really big advantage. Um, if you already work in a vertical, if you understand the way they purchase, um, if you understand the way they operate, if you have the industry contacts there, it's much, much easier to go in and sell them new applications. So yes, for that commercial side, I, th I think IBM have a distinct advantage. I think Amazon, with the work they're doing on the cloud, um, probably aren't far behind, particularly in more tech-oriented companies. Um, they will already have um, those routes in. Do, do um, they have an API for uh, Alexa? Um, Alexa has skills which you can set up so you can effectively add additional keywords that allow you to write something um, and then 
um, Alexa will take that, push the data, or, or take the data in, process it, and then push it back out to your section of the cloud so you can serve it back to the customer. Right, okay. So you could use this for, you can create your own application. That you... And a lot of companies have. Um, Amazon have been quite aggressive in pushing that and have had a lot of uptake. So you can actually get Alexa skills from anything to telling you what your journey into work will be like in the morning, what the weather is, um, how to order new washing powder. Um, and Alexa is now also getting built into products because as well as the skills, um, Amazon will let you put the code in your device. And you only need sort of a, a couple of dollars worth of processor to actually do that keyword recognition. Um, so you can buy Alexa fridges, you can buy Alexa TVs, washing machines, quite what you use some of them for, I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, um, Amazon's doing a great job of making sure Alexa just becomes endemic. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, I guess my third um, issue is with this kind of cloud architecture. You know, we're um, <clears throat> pumping more and more data in the cloud. Now, obviously, experiences of, you know, some cloud services in the past few years haven't been amazing. We're all, you're obviously very beholden on what your bandwidth is and how much is required and I know having looked at a lot of building systems, you have to be very careful. Of, and you mentioned this before about what you what you want to send to the cloud for to be processed and what you don't. Um, and, and also looking at um, you know energy uses. Obviously, in commercial buildings, we um, energy efficiency is. Uh, is a is a big topic, and uh, a lot of companies trying to help uh, commercial buildings save energy. But in a way, like you know, if we're putting all of this information in the crowd, we're, we're just are we just um, outsourcing the problem, right? So we're not okay. We're not perhaps don't have as much or processing as much energy uh, at the edge because we don't have servers there, but we're just pushing that into the cloud, where there are a lot of data centers, and that's where the energy is being used. Is there is there any way of doing this without the cloud? I mean, it's, are we just going to have to accept that this is going to push more information in the cloud and we have to live with that? If I answer it slightly differently, is there any way of doing this without some advanced analytics running on a fairly high-end server? Yeah. The answer is probably no. Um, this isn't easy stuff to do. It does need a lot of processing capability to do it. To that extent, if you're going to do it, it's probably more energy efficient if that processing is concentrated in some data farms which are dedicated to doing that, rather than trying to spread that out into lots of individual servers that are going to spend a lot of their time just sitting around waiting for somebody to talk to them. So if you are going to do it, then it's probably more effective if it's all done with one or two large suppliers that have dedicated sets of data servers that are optimized for this. 
Right. Are, are you still there? Sorry, Nick. Uh, sorry. I'm. Yes, I'm. I'm there. I, I. I just coughed, so I muted for a second. <laughs> okay. We have a comment, uh, sort of based on that as well. And he said, although I can appreciate the advantages of um, IOV control in the home, uh, I'm concerned about the vast increase in internet power consumption caused by um, IOV or VoIP traffic in the cloud. What's your take on this? Um, you know, we're obviously pushing a lot more things, using the internet so much more now for all types of data. Uh, have we got the infrastructure to cope with all of this stuff? Voice doesn't take up that much bandwidth. Um, if you look at what you need over a voice link, it's remarkably low. Um, and there's more efficient codecs coming out and which are trickling down from the mobile phone world, um, which really consume very, very little bandwidth at all. So what an average home would use in a day in terms of voice commands probably isn't much more than a minute or two of YouTube streaming. So I'm not sure I'd be very worried about the additional um, bandwidth requirements of everybody moving to voice. I think that's swamped by the bandwidth requirements we're getting of people streaming video. Right. Yeah, but it it is a problem. But voice isn't really uh, affecting it. It's just it's just a general problem. It's it's a general problem. I mean, if you look at some of the new wideband speech codecs that are, are being used for four um, G telephony, you're getting perfectly good um, audio content over those, which is quite recognisable at a bandwidth of only about 14 kilobits per second. Mm. I mean, th this really is good old-fashioned telephone line stuff. Um, it's not the megabits and gigabits that we're used to streaming into the house today. Yeah. So if you were, um, if you, you know, you to put your, uh, look at your crystal ball, uh, let's say four or five years, I mean, wh how do you see this affecting, I guess, smartphones, for one? And then, I mean, we talked about the home already, but I'm also interested in applications in commercial building. I mean, how are we going to be using voice? The smart home, I think, is going to be a long burn before we get there. Um, I think without voice, smart home will remain a very, very small segment. Um, voice makes it more usable, and I think that if any one thing is going to get smart home to take off, it will be voice. But I think there is a lot of additional work that needs to be done in working out just what smart home devices are, particularly as most of them are going into legacy buildings, buildings which already exist. Um, and you need to work out how you integrate smart home with those homes. Um, without ripping the whole thing out and starting afresh from scratch, which just is economically non-viable for the vast bulk of people. So smart home has other issues. I think voice will help it. Um, smartphones is a more interesting one because if you think of our history of computing, it went from sort of abacus 
sort of up through calculators into mainframes and then back down from mainframes to desktops to laptops to um, PDAs and tablets and smartphones. Um, and at some point there is going to be a next device that we all move to and we will look back at smartphones in the way we looked back at um, previous generations of computing devices. I think voice could well be one of the things that starts to move us away from our current addiction to smartphones. Um, when we don't need to take the smartphone out of our pocket but can just talk to it, um, we may start to fall out of love with it. Now there's quite a lot of issues around that of where we go. I mean the first is that two of the things that most detractors and addictors to smartphones are games and voice case based games aren't something that we generally do and it's also social media and um, social media perhaps could move to voice um, and if it does that could potentially also maybe be the one thing that threatens sort of Facebook as we see it today. I think there's a lot of other things that need to happen to to drive that. Um, we need to get um, more people being able to discreetly talk to their phone, which probably takes us to where we're going with earbuds and hearable devices. Um, but I, I do think that certainly around the home, as you start to talk to an Alexa, I mean, most people today don't talk to Alexa to um, automate their home. They talk to Alexa occasionally to buy something. Um, quite frequently to play something um, and also just to ask questions. Um, asking those questions for all of the other skills that are coming in is just what's happening or what's relevant to my life today. Um, as people spend more and more time doing that where they just talk to an entity in the home, that's time that they're not spending on their smartphone. Um, and in the same way that sort of phone usage took people away from doing other things that they used to do, um, I mean, smartphones are meant to be one of the things that has really stopped smoking in teenage girls because they spend their time and money on the smartphone instead. Um, so talking to stuff may change it. Um, and I think that voice, intriguingly, may be something that starts to change the way that we use the computing aspects on our phones um, and the phone will stay in a pocket far more time yeah 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 i mean like you said you mentioned these kind of simple questions which you don't need to see a phone for but but we have to at the moment for yeah. example asking what the weather is or finding out where you're supposed to be in 10 minutes or those kind of questions which can be answered quite quickly and easily with voice, right? I mean, human existence has largely developed through voice. Um, it's been fascinating the way that smartphones have taken conversation away. There's a, there's a brilliant book by an MIT anthropologist, Sherry Turkle, called Reclaiming Conversation, which looks at just how conversation has been taken away from people by smartphones and how you see that both in sort of child development and even ability of people that are now coming out of university into work of being unable to actually relate to other people. Yeah. Um, 
at some point I think there is going to be a reaction against this and this may help drive that. Yeah, and that's very interesting. Very, yeah, definitely. Uh, just a, another message for everyone out there. Um, we're coming to the end now. So uh, if you do have a question for Nick, then please type it in now because uh, we're not going to be online much longer. Uh, and yeah, so I guess the last part of um, that question I asked you previously, Nick, was uh, commercial buildings. Do you see any obvious applications in the commercial world for, 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 for voice? I think the commercial one's more interesting um, because voice today works quite well at an individual basis where there are only one or two people in a room. Um, in an office environment, that is different. I think what will change it is we're seeing a change in what people actually sort of wear over their ears. That um, where people traditionally were wearing, um, or you would see that a number of people would just cut themselves off from the office um, wearing their earbuds or earphones, which generally is just one-way traffic of music into the ears. We're seeing a new generations of devices that include microphones. Um, those are being included for a couple of reasons. One is obviously to pick up speech. Um, another one is actually to pick up background noise and increasingly you're seeing um, that being used for noise cancellation um, so that people can start to cut out office noise around them. When that happens, it becomes much, much um, easier to actually start to talk to things again um, because you're not hearing the people around you doing it so some of the social stigma of just sort of appearing to talk to yourself in the office goes away and at that point we might get voice commands coming in now whether that future where everybody is shutting themselves off from everybody else and resorting to using voice and the replies only come back to their ears is a good thing. I think it's highly questionable. Um, but we may see that coming and it seems to be driven by people's preference not to talk to their colleagues at work um, but just to try and isolate themselves while they get through the day. Yes. Yeah, that's... Uh, it's, well, but it, it, it does worry me. You go into offices today and they're quiet because people don't talk to each other anymore. Right, yeah. And, and as you said, you, it's, not, it's very common now to have people plugged in, right, with, uh, with some kind of headphones into the, into the computer or mobile phone. Uh, just time for one more question here, and this is from the floor. Um, uh, yeah, I think this is a definitely interesting point. Um, how... If, if voice is now the interface, how will device manufacturers be able to differentiate? It, it does raise that, it raises sort of question, doesn't it? Because, you know, with a phone, it's, it's something that you can, you, you, you're looking at a lot, right? So it's, a, it's a even, it's easier to, to um, differentiate, but voice kind of levels it's the playing field a little bit, doesn't it? It, well, it levels a playing field, but it also allows somebody to own the playing field. Um, at one end, you have the person that's doing the voice recognition, and today that's Amazon. So you have Amazon's Echo. Now, Google have got Google Now. 
other companies, I mean, a whole host of companies were out there at Mobile World Congress saying, we have voice assistants. And you just think, but you haven't got the cloud and the analytics behind it. What's the point? Um, Amazon is quite keen to allow other people to put the Alexa technology in their products. And they can continue to sell that. And in the short term, we're seeing that being used by manufacturers as a way of differentiating to say, mine is an Alexa-based product. That's, I think, a clever strategy because it then lets each individual company in the market area just say, well, here is a service. First ones in may get um, pick up customer churn. Um, then others will probably follow it. And it will be interesting to see whether that ends up with Amazon owning all of the voice at the back end um, or whether other companies will come in and say we've got an alternative voice back end and there's differentiation in that. Um, I think it's the same issue that we have with any new technology coming out of how do you differentiate it. Um, I think it's quite interesting. I mean, down at Barcelona at the Mobile World Congress, I don't know how many tens of thousands of different smartphones are on display, all of which looked identical. Um, the market commoditizes, and then it's the issue of individual companies as to how to differentiate it, whether you do it by brand, whether you do it by service, whether you do it by price. Um, and if you are a hardware-only or a predominantly hardware-based company, then you have got real issues to prevent commoditization. Yeah, that's just a fact, isn't it? Of technology. That's, I'm afraid, a fact of life in today's world. Yeah, and I think, you know what, that's a good point to end on. Um, so I just guess want to say, obviously, thanks, Nick. Where can they find out more about you and um, what you're up to? I run a blog. It's at nickhun.com. Um, so not too difficult to find. Um, I'll, I'll be posting a few things over the next week with sort of some updates of what I see happening, um, both with voice, with the Internet of Things and 5G as a basis of a week down at Barcelona. Um, and that's got contact details on, um, or come and catch me on my LinkedIn page. Great. Okay. Well, I'll we'll definitely... Uh, post um, some of those links on on our website so people can find that there as well. A uh, couple of things to finish from me. Um, first, I just want to say thank you again to our sponsor, Project Haystack. Uh, go and check out what they're doing with their open source uh, project. That's at project-haystack.org. Uh, also, we have recorded this and it's going to be up on our website and also SoundCloud and now iTunes. So uh, if you want to find us on um, iTunes, just search for Smart Buildings and uh, that will be, uh, the audio will be posted uh, probably tomorrow morning. And then uh, finally, we've got a net, uh, our webinar for April is going to be discussing data analytics with Symmetrics. Uh, and uh, if you go to our website, you'll see details of that and also some of the new research that we've done on startups in uh, in smart buildings so yeah just want to say thanks for listening and and finally just say thanks to nick appreciate you taking the time um, thanks for the opportunity not at all okay bye everybody thank you bye